0: Podcast is part of the sports social podcast network The two-footed podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC Player, to watch match of the day or itv hub or all four but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location a liberty shield vpn gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe and it goes further than that it allows you to open up netflix's entire library by just changing your ip address Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that. To the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package which is instantly downloadable to your device and you can get using straight away. Again libertyshield.com EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device, and that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good boys and girls, two-footed podcast. Today is Monday, it is the 27th of November. I hope you're all well. A little bit later than normal today, I may have got distracted looking at some stuff on YouTube. Anyway, uh, we start on a bit of a somber note today. Over the weekend, we lost one of the great characters of football in Terry Venables, who passed away aged 80. Venables made his name as a player with Chelsea, Tottenham, and Queen's Park Rangers, finished off with the season at Crystal Palace, but is best known by many as a manager. He managed Crystal Palace, Queen's Park Rangers, Barcelona, Tottenham Hotspur, England, Australia, Crystal Palace, Middlesbrough, and then Leeds. He was last involved in the game on a professional basis, as the assistant manager to Steve McLaren with England. He was known as an innovative coach, a development coach, somebody who played an attractive brand of football. He, in many ways, laid a lot of the groundwork for what Johan Cruyff would later do with Barcelona. And it's amazing to think that he was hired by Barcelona from Queen's Park Rangers, just imagine now if Xavi decided to leave. And, and someone made the comparison to me over the weekend. Oh, well, they hired Xavi from Qatar or wherever it was that he was managing. But Xavi wasn't hired based on his managerial performance or his managerial track record. Barcelona hired him based on the fact that he's Xavi, nothing else. Imagine if Xavi left Barca tomorrow. And they had a look around, and the guy they decided to go for was Andoni Iraola, based on what he's done at Bournemouth. Now, again, he hasn't done a whole lot there, but that sort of example, a manager who's managed one of the smaller clubs in England, taken over another of the smaller clubs, done very well. But it's the the style of football. It's the bravery of what he's doing. Imagine Imagine if Barca had come in and taken Graham Potter directly from Brighton. Now, Potter has more of a track record than Venables, but it's that same level where Potter had been obviously in Scandinavia, then at Swansea, and then at Brighton. Imagine if Barca came in and took Thomas Frank. That's probably the most exact comparison. Brentford now to QPR back then is about is about a, a sidewards move. So just consider that for a second. To come not for the manager of Manchester United or Liverpool or Arsenal or even you know Nottingham Forest or Aston Villa or Spurs or Everton, to come for the manager of QPR back then. And to his credit, Venables did well at Barcelona. There's the idea that he failed in his time there, but he didn't. He didn't have great success. He didn't win a ton of awards, but he did win the league title. He did win the cup in his second won the league title in his first season, and the cup in his second season. And he got to a European Cup final, where Barça were beaten by Steaua Bucharest. You look at the team that he built, and Steve Archibald brought in Bernd Schuster, Julio Alberto's in that team, Gerardo's playing right back. It's not a vintage Barca, but it's it's a good team that he had crafted and had playing an attractive brand of football. Now, obviously, he also reached back to the UK to bring other players across, he brought Mark Hughes over, signed him from Manchester United in 1986 and brought him to Manchester United, or to, to Manchester United, to, to Barcelona. He obviously would find his way back to United. He signed Gary Lineker. Lineker missed that European Cup final. Lineker would have been vital to Barcelona that season. Lineker is one of those unfortunate players who was at Leicester. Everton won the league in 84-85. They signed Lineker and they didn't win the league. But that same season, Barcelona did win their league and then they signed Lineker and then they didn't win the league. Um, Poor Gary. Never quite got his league title, but was very good for Barcelona, especially in that first season. Lineker would have joined after the European Cup final. I'm wrong. Lineker was there for the last season. But regardless, his ideas to bring in players from overseas were something that were not all that common back then. And when you look at what he'd done, you know, at Crystal Palace, who were very much a club that lived on a yo-yo up and down season to season and he wins 36% of his games. He gets the QPR job. He wins near, he wins 49.7% of his games, 50% of his games at QPR. That's what and, and it was the style of football. A very attack-minded 4-4-2 with wingers empowered to run at their fullbacks, nice patterns of play through the middle of the park an adventurous nature to them. And he took that to Spurs. And a lot of people will remember that Spurs team with which he won the FA Cup, the last time Tottenham did win the FA Cup. Um, the players that he brought in, he obviously brought Lineker. He signed Gaza. And in many ways, he developed Gaza into a player who, was wanted the world over. Every club wanted Paul Gascoigne. Venables managed to get him and then he improved him significantly to the point where when it came time for Gaza to leave Spurs and move on, every club was after him. Every club. And Lazio paid an enormous fee to bring him over. And it's just unfortunate that in that FA Cup final, which was to be Gaza's last game for Spurs, the, the transfer was already agreed, his knee exploded after 17 minutes. That would have been death for a lot of teams in a cup final to lose your best player so early. But with Venables, he was able to roll with the punches. He brings on Naeem, the playing a four, five, one, but both um, Paul Allen on the right and Vinnie Samways on the left have a lot of license to get forward and, and attack and join Lineker, as do Gaza and Paul Stewart, two really attack-minded midfielders. David Howells was basically charged with just sitting in front of that defense and protecting it while his four midfield teammates went forward to join Lineker. And if you go back and watch that game, it's a really interesting game, the 91 FA Cup final. And it should have been the start of one of the great player versus player rivalries in English football with Roy Keane and Gaza. But unfortunately, Gaza was leaving to head abroad and the knee injury and everything else that took over, he was never quite the same. But in other times, Gaza wouldn't have been going abroad. He might have been going to Manchester United or Liverpool. And Keane obviously would end up at United and potentially they could have been a great partnership. Or if he'd gone to Liverpool, they could have been a great rivalry, going head-to-head game after game. But Venables was willing to put a lot of faith in Gaza. If you find footage of games of Gaza at Spurs under Terry Venables, there's a real maverick nature to it. And a lot of managers, especially around then, would have tried to rein him in. The talk always was, if he went to Manchester United, what would have happened to Gaza? In all likelihood, he doesn't end up with the problems that he had off the pitch because Ferguson, one of the first things he did at United was he cut out the drinking culture. So if Gaza had landed there, yes, there was still a couple that would have been heavy drinkers. Keane has alluded to the fact that there was a few. But your McGraths and your Whitesides and that, they were gone. And things were far more controlled and contained and Ferguson as we know took a very hard line with his players part part manager part, part father part school teacher schoolmaster in fact but Gaza might not have become as great as he did because there's no question he was a great player at Spurs and much of that came from the fate that Terry Venables put in him that willingness to allow him to play outside the system and to formulate the rest of the system to amplify the strength of Paul Gascoigne, while also hiding some of the defensive weaknesses that he had. Gaza was often one that when he lost the ball, he might put his hands on his hips and look around a little bit and not chase back. But Spurs would find ways to cover for that. And I always remember his England team. He takes over with England following the sacking of Graham Taylor. Taylor obviously had failed to qualify for the World Cup in 94, which was a source of great embarrassment, after quite an embarrassing showing at Euro 92. And I've always felt Graham Taylor was harsh done by because he took over from Bobby Robson whose team were aging out in a lot of ways, and he was being asked to construct a new team while working under a glaring amount of pressure. I don't feel like the England manager now has anywhere near the amount of pressure that they had then. Because I think there's so many more big personalities in the Premier League. Like, if you go back to the start of the the 90s when Taylor takes over as England manager, there aren't many famous or big managers around. You've got Alex Ferguson, obviously, but Ferguson didn't want the pomp and circumstance. Ferguson didn't want any of the attention that went around him. We also didn't have the social media glare that now focuses on clubs and everything is about club football. Back then, if you look up and down, Clough was at the end Ferguson wasn't really that type. George Graham wasn't that type. They didn't have that sort of, that want to be in the press, that want to be talked about. The England manager was always the topic. And Taylor, especially because he replaced Robson, who was so beloved and had done really well getting to a World Cup semi-final. Taylor was was held to a standard that was very unfair. And when he was fired, and to be fair, Taylor should never have really gotten the job because the style of football that Graham Taylor preferred to play wasn't going to translate to playing, for, playing with England. Graham Taylor's teams were very direct. They were aggressively direct. You wouldn't quite go to the point of agricultural, but you'd look at someone like Thomas Frank at Brentford, There's a lot of similarities between his team and how they play to how Graham Taylor played. But Venables takes over. And he's seen as this breath of fresh air. He's known for this exciting brand of football that he plays. And straight away, he makes a pretty big decision and he freezes Paul inside of the national team because Ince refused to take part in the Umbro Cup in 1995. And as an aside, that Umbro Cup was the first time that most of us got to see Roberto Carlos, Giannino, Ronaldo, Edmundo. These weren't players that we were overly familiar with. Now, obviously, they would all go on to become... Legendary figures for one reason or another. Carlos, one of the great left backs of all time. Ronaldo, one of the great nines of all time. Janino, Middlesbrough's best player ever, was fantastic in the Premier League for his time there. And Edmondo's one of the great lunatics of all time, like a legendary head case. Always entertaining. And of course, made Gary Neville look very bad in an Intercontinental Cup game, which... I think, gave him a place in the hearts of all of those who proudly wore the Anybody But United badge. But with England in that tournament, they beat Japan, and he started to bring in some new players, and the likes of Tim Flowers and Gary Neville and John Scales and David Unsworth and Darren Anderson. These are players that had caps, some of them had caps, but this was a manager... Willing to really make them an important part of a squad. Stan Collymore, another one that owes his England career to Terry Venables. They beat Japan 2-1. Then they draw 3-3 with Sweden. And if you can find that game, it is so much fun. And the England team on that in that in that game had again a bunch of new players. Warren Barton, Colin Cooper, Graham Lassoe Anderton. Nicky Barnby off the bench. John Scales again coming off the bench. England are 3-1 down with two minutes left. Platt scores and Anderton scores. It's a very, very entertaining game. This tournament in itself was so much fun to watch, largely because of the Brazilians and just how different Roberto Carlos was, how phenomenal Ronaldo was the impish brilliance of Janinho in midfield. England lost 3-1 to Brazil in the last game, and England ended up finishing second in the tournament. But what was entertaining was the fact that they went toe-to-toe with Brazil in that last game. They went one up through Graham Lasso, playing a back four of Neville, Scales, Colin Cooper, and Stuart Pierce at left back. Lasseau played left wing. Anderton right wing, batting and Platt in midfield, shearer and sharing up up front. That that sold the seeds for that Shearer Sheringham partnership that would be so good at Euro 96. But Ince wouldn't play in the tournament, so he froze him out. He wasn't going to have it. If you're not going to turn up when I tell you to turn up, you're not going to be involved. Now he would obviously bring him back into the mix, but it was a really strong stance to take against a player who was a very big part of the squad, a very vocal presence, one of the young one of the leaders of the group. He was the one that made Tony Adams captain for euro ninety six. And a big part of that was the way Adams came and brought the squad together. After all the shenanigans with Gaza and the plane that got wrecked and the dentist chair and all that kind of stuff. And when Adams turned around and said, if the FA want Gaza kicked out, we're all leaving. Venables was completely on the player's side. And that's what he was. He was a player's manager. He wasn't like, a, you know, you see some managers and you think they're a bit more of a company stooge, a yes man. They're there because the powers that be think he thinks the same as us. Hodgson is an example of this with England. Southgate's another one. They're company men. <clears throat> Their loyalty is to the FA. Venable's loyalty was always to his players. And that's why players enjoyed playing from that and the fact that he did give them license to A, play their games, and B, live their lives. He wasn't going to interfere because he was a guy known for enjoying life. He was nicknamed L Tell because he always had the tan. He always had that suave kind of look. He was football's answer to Del Boy in many ways. Probably didn't drive a three-wheel van, but you know the point. England played sensational football at Euro 96. And again you look at the squad that he picked and he's giving chances to inexperienced players. You look at the caps in that 22-man group. David Seaman 24 caps. He'd had to wait for his opportunity a long time because Robson was too loyal to Peter Shilton. Gary Neville 10 caps. Owes his international career to Venables. Stuart Pierce, 65 caps. He was an old-timer. Paul Ince, 19 caps. Venables had frozen him out. Cost him a year of his international career. He obviously was another that had to wait for the previous generation to move on. He wasn't given the opportunities in his 20s that he probably should have been given when he was at West Ham. Adams, 40 caps. Gareth Southgate, four caps. David Platt, 58 Gaza, 38. Should have been a lot more by then, but pricking around and then the knee injury. Alan Shearer, 23 caps. Sheringham, 15 caps. Sheringham was 30. Had never been a consistent member of the England squad until Terry Venables realised this is the perfect foil for Alan Shearer. Darren Anderton, 11 caps. Steve Howey, 4 caps. Tim Flowers, 8 caps. Nick Barnby, 6 caps. Jamie Redknapp, four caps. Saul Campbell, one cap. Got his debut under Venables, and Venables wanted him in his squad. Phil Neville, one cap. Another one that owed his international career to Venables. Steve McManaman and Les Ferdinand, 10 caps each. Steve Stone, six caps. Robbie Fowler, three caps. And Ian Walker, two caps. Imagine, if you can, summer 2024, England are going into the Euros and Garrett Southgate announces his squad. And in that squad, there are only four players with 25 or more caps. There are only six players with 20 or more caps. And there are only eight players with 15 or more caps. Imagine the criticism they would face. But this wasn't met with criticism. It was met with a bit of shock and awe. It was met with, well, where's the experience? What's your starting 11 going to be? Who are your leaders outside of Adams and Ince? Because Gaza wasn't a leader. Platt had leadership, to his credit. But Shearer wasn't seen as a leader back then. Sheringham wasn't viewed as a leader. This was viewed as a very risk-orientated squad. But there was a there was an intrigue because it was Venables, because he was like a little mad professor and he wasn't seen as one that played by the rules or, or told the line. He was seen as somebody who would take risks and he took a big risk with this squad. There's no question this was a very, very risky squad to pick. And you look at the group stage, First game, a 1-1 draw with Switzerland. Shearer scores early. England play 4-diamond, 2. Neville, Adams, Southgate and Pearce in front of Seaman. Ince plays as the holding midfielder. Gaza plays as the 10. Normally in a diamond, you play an engine room. You play two box-to-box midfielders. Not Venables. Anderton, wide right. McManaman, wide left, spreading the field and trying to open up that Swiss team managed by Roy Hodgson. No, managed by Arthur George. Roy Hodgson was after that, I think, or before that. Either way, they were very, very disciplined, compact 4-4-2 that became a 4-6-0 out of possession. You would think when you're playing with wingers, you would play two midfielders in the centre, but Venables wasn't about that. He was going to play in steep. He was going to play Gaza in, a, in an advanced role, and he was going to leave the centre of the midfield, and he's going to let the players figure it out. Shearer with Sheringham just off from up front. England go one up through Alan Shearer on 23 minutes. Absolutely kicked the tar out of the Swiss for 70 minutes. Domination. The Swiss are all over the place. How England don't get a second goal, I don't know. Steve Stone and Nick Barnby are brought on on 70 minutes for McManaman and Gaza. No, McManaman and Sheringham. And then Platt comes on for Gaza. On 83 minutes, the Swiss get a penalty. And they equalise. It's a massive, massive blow for England in their first game. Given they're the hosts, given that there's huge amounts of pressure on manager and players. And given that, Venables knows he's leaving. Venables knows he's walking away after this tournament. Because six months earlier, he'd gone to the FA about an extension because his contract was from when he took over in 94 up until after these Euros. So in the December before the Euros, he goes to the FA and he says, well, look, can we talk about a contract extension? And they said, no. We'll talk about one after the Euros. And he said, but my contract is up then. And they said, well, that's the way we're going to do it. We're going to evaluate you based on performance, which is fair. But Venables was also fully within his rights then to turn around and say, okay, well, I'm not interested in an extension. Now, The FA threw a real spanner in the works here because a month before these Euros, they announced that Glenn Hoddle is taking over. And now Venables is dead man walking. Can you imagine if England had won this competition and then Venables turned around and said, well, I'd actually like to stay. And then they went, well, no, we've got Glenn Hoddle coming in. Glenn Hoddle, who, by the way, had done nothing as a manager. He'd gotten Swindon promoted and then relegated and then he'd gone to Chelsea, and he hadn't exactly lit the world on fire there. But he was Glenn Hoddle; he was a big name, and they thought they thought they might have a bit more more control with him because he'd been an in England international, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, than they had with Venables, who was always dancing to the beat of his own drum. There was a lot of pressure on Venables going into this competition. And that pressure ramped way, way up after this game against the Swiss. In their second game, they played Scotland. And Venables played one of the riskiest. We talk now about managers who do innovative things. And a lot gets made of Pep Guardiola. And last season, playing that 3-2-3-2, where John Stones would step into midfield from centre-back alongside Rodri, the full-backs, Walker and Aki, Akanji and Aki, whichever, would tighten in close to uh, Ruben Diaz. In that Scotland game, that's how... England played. They started out with Gary Neville right back, Southgate and Adams as centre-backs, and Stuart Pearce left-back. Paul Ince and Gaza as the midfield two, Anderton and McManaman wide, Shearer and Sheringham up up front. Watch that game, and watch specifically Garrett Southgate. He's playing in midfield. It's him and it's Ince in front of a back three. Neville tucks in, Pierce tucks in, Southgate steps forward, and Southgate and Inns provide a platform so that Gaza can push forward. The two wingers can get even higher up, and England have a five man attack, and they were sensational. At half time, he took off Stuart Pierce and he moved Southgate to the left side of the defense, and he brought Jamie Redknapp into midfield to fully commit to 3-2-3-2. And once he did that, England were just unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's one of the best England performances that you're likely to see. And they cut that Scottish team open. Obviously, McAllister misses the penalty. David Seaman makes the save. Shearer scores on 53. And then the most memorable goal of that competition is the Gaza goal followed by the dentist chair separate uh, celebration. Redknapp's ball into the channel. Colin Henry comes across. Gazza lifts it over his head with his left foot and hits it on the half volley as it rises with his right foot and gives Andy Gorham absolutely no chance. Steve Stone and Saul Campbell came on later in the game. Redknapp had to go off injured. You would think that 2-0 up, so, uh, Venables would take less risk. Not at all. He took off Ince on 80 minutes because he'd been booked. Put Steve Stone on. Moved Gaza deeper into midfield. So you've got a Gaza-Redknapp double pivot. Put Stone in a wide area, moves McMahon, in central. Then Redknapp gets hurt. Unfortunately, it's a bad injury and it ends his tournament. And he brings on Saul Campbell and pushes Southgate back into a midfield position. England were brilliant on the day. And like I say, it's one of the best performances by England you'll ever see. But the best performance you'll ever see England have is is the last game of that group against the Netherlands. He makes changes to the team. He goes back to a 4-4-2. But again, he plays that split diamond. Neville, Adams, Southgate and Pearce play as a traditional back four. But again, you've still got Southgate stepping out. The midfield remains the same. Anderton, Ince, Gascoigne and McManaman. And Shearer sharing them up front. And England were just incredible. Shearer scores on 23 minutes from the penalty spot. In 11 second half minutes, Sheringham scores, Shearer gets a second, and Sheringham gets a second and the football england played that day was unlike anything i've ever seen any england team play since it was like watching it was like watching barcelona or brazil passing movement people making the right decision every single time positional rotation defensively playing a high line but being uber compact and still having this expressive nature to them. They were just they were it was the perfect performance barring the Clivert goal. And the Clivert goal came after England had made three substitutions and weakened themselves defensively by bringing off Ince, who'd been booked again. Platt came on in midfield, Barnby replaced Shearer, Fowler replaced Sheringham. Clivert scored a minute later. Not Dutch team. Van der Saar, Reitziger, Ronald de Boer, Clarence Sadorf, Dennis Bergkamp. It's a hell of a team. There's some weak points in it. Jordi Cruyff, I mean, how he ever got capped by the Dutch, I don't know. Winston Bogart, this was before people realised he wasn't very good. Aaron Vinter's in that team as well, another quality player. Richard Vitschke's in the team, another quality player. And Peter Hoitster was okay. The Dutch played 3-4-3 and England just cut them apart. Just exposed them. Anderson and McManaman down the lines with Neville and Pierce getting forward. Gas going drifting into wide areas. Sharing them always available in the hole. Just unbelievable. I would be shocked if anyone can find 90 minutes of England being better than they were on that day. They were just different class. The Dutch couldn't live with them. Now, the Dutch were in turmoil at the time, it needs to be pointed out. Edgar Davids had gone home because he had a falling out with hitting. But England were just incredible. It's not like the Dutch were awful because they got through out of the group ahead of Scotland and Switzerland, who were both decent teams. And that's the thing. That was a really tough group. In many ways, that was probably probably the toughest group. Uh, France, Spain... Bulgaria, Romania, Romania were not good at the time. Bulgaria were pretty strong in 96. It had a great World Cup in 94. The Romanians had as well, to their credit, but they'd gotten old. A lot of their team had been around since the late 80s, early 90s. And they were all sort of, you know, just a little bit over the hill. Uh, Group C, you had Germany, the surprise package in Czech Republic, Italy and Russia, and Group D, Portugal, Croatia, Denmark, and Turkey. That group was not seen as particularly strong before the competition because nobody expected the Croats to be as good as they were in the same way no one expected the Czechs to be as good. But I remember there was a lot of talk about Group D because the Danes were in it and Portugal, and they'd won in 92, and people expected Portugal and the Danes to come through because that Portuguese team was really starting to hum with Figo Rui Costa, Gio Pinto. Um, anyway, on to the knockout stage in that tournament. And England take on Spain. And Southgate... Sorry, uh, Venables... Oh, I keep saying Southgate. Venables obviously has to deal with the fact that he doesn't have David uh, Paul Ince available. Paul Ince is suspended. Now, what he could have done was he could have played Southgate in midfield because he played there at club level and he'd been playing there for England in possession and he could have brought Saul Campbell in at centre-back. He could have moved Stuart Pearce in and played Phil Neville at left-back. But he decided to just stick with what he had and he brought David Platt into midfield for Gaza. And he went with Gaza and he went super attack-minded. Four defenders and six attacking players. And they rolled their luck at times. That's a very good game. For a nil-nil, it's it's a very good game. It's really tense. Goes to penalties and England win, 4-2. Stuart Pierce gets his redemption six years after missing that penalty against against Germany. <laughs> against Germany. Um, when Bodo Wildner saved it because he smashed it straight down in the middle in the World Cup semi-final. Uh, England advanced to the semi-final then and it's just unfortunate the way the draw broke, because if England had gotten into the other semi-final, they would have beaten either France or the Czechs. I'm convinced of that. Now, the Czechs had some real standout players, most notably Pavel Nedved. He Karol Poborsky was in that team, Vladimir Schmitz was in that team, Patrick Berger was in that squad, Mikhail Hornak was one of the defenders, Miroslav Kadlic was another one of the defenders, Peter Kuba best known for being not very good on crosses was uh, was their goalkeeper i think england would have beaten them and i think they would have beaten the french the french are 2 years away from winning the world cup but it's a young lilian turam it's a very young and inexperienced zinedine zidane yuri jorkayev is is experienced but not at the highest level He's not someone that's really made his name as yet. Patrice Loka, who's a bit of a wild card. Alan Roche is playing at centre-back. Desais is at midfield. You don't have your Viera's and Patiz and players like that that really beefed out that squad. There's no Thierry Henry yet. There's no David Trezeguet yet. Bernard Lama is still the goalkeeper. hasn't hasn't taken that spot yet. I think England would have beaten either of them. Unfortunately, they ran into the one team that I think was, was better than them, and that's that German team. And I've talked with that German team a bunch. That German team was sensation. And they just had what was needed to beat England. Now, bearing in mind, they were missing their starting strikers. Freddie Bobic and Jurgen Klinsmann were both out. So England went into that game with a real chance. And three minutes into the game, they go 1-0 up through Alan Shearer. Ince is back in, and England are back to the four-diamond two, with wingers, not midfielders. Brave, aggressive, England controlled that game. Outplayed the Germans, for large spells. Just couldn't find that goal. The one criticism of Venables, for that game as he didn't make any substitutions. And that game went to extra time. He didn't make any substitutions. And he said it was because they were playing so well, he didn't want to spoil the mix. And there's, there's definitely merit in that. But unfortunately, when it came to the penalty shootout, the Germans had made three substitutions. And of the players that came on, the first two German penalty takers were two of the subs, Thomas Hassler and Thomas Strunz. The Germans had left Hassler out, brought in Stefan Freund, and tried to be more compact because they knew England were going to be expansive. England were going to play to win the game. So the Germans were like, okay, well, we'll set out not to lose, and then we'll try and counter you. And it's a really good chess match of a game. It's a game that deserved to be the final. It had everything. Great players on both sides. Two managers operating at a high level tactically. Very contrasting approaches to the game. Loads of drama. Loads and loads of drama. Including that Anderton ball across and Gaza stretching for it, sliding for it, and just not been able to get his studs to it. And I still maintain, if he'd stretched for it like it was a sliding tackle, rather than trying to throw the ball in, like to get his soul on the ball, if he'd just thrown himself into it and let the ball hit him, it might well have gone in. There might have been too much pace on it, but we'll never know. Shearer scores, Hassler scores, Platt scores, Strunt scores, Pierce scores, Reuter scores, Gaza scores, Ziga scores, Sheringham scores, Kuntz scores. 5-5 five, on five penalties. The only thing this game is missing is sudden death. And now we have sudden death. And then Southgate misses. It's a really, really poor penalty. It's a really weak penalty. He shouldn't have been taking that penalty. The other notable thing about that game is there was one change to the England team from what had been the team. And this will tell you how attack-minded Terry Venables was. Gary Neville missed that game. He'd been booked against Spain and was suspended. Now, Steve Stone had played... Right side, right wing, and right back in his career. Phil Neville was in the squad. But Venables went with David Platt, who, to my knowledge, never had before and never did after play right back in his life. But he went with David Platt up against Christian Ziga, who at that time was one of the best left backs in the world. Brilliant attacker pace for days, dangerous cross with the ball. And he went with Platt, and Platt did really well in that game. And the next penalty taker, after Sheringham, because you didn't know who the penalty taker was going to be until they walked forward. So you're looking at it and thinking, right, Shearer's out, Sheringham's out, is out, Pearson, Platt are out. That leaves Adams, Ince, Anderton and McManaman. Now, I'd seen Steve McManaman take a penalty and it wasn't good. My assumption was Darren Anderton is the best striker of a ball left in the England team who hasn't taken one. Darren Anderton should be next. Garrett Southgate walks forward and you think, oh, well, this is interesting. We don't know if he's taken penalties before. And it's 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 dreadful. It's one of the worst penalties you'll ever see. Andy Kopka just falls on it. Doesn't even have to dive, really. Just falls on it. The Germans, on the other hand, when you looked at their penalty takers, you wouldn't have thought Thomas Strunz and Stefan Reuter in the top three. You just wouldn't. But the Germans had such confidence in their ability from twelve yards that they were able to hold back two of their better strikers of the ball for the for the knockout for the the, the sudden death part of it. Now it could have backfired badly if, for example, if Stefan Kuntz misses or Reuter misses. Now you want, Reuter was never Reuter was never going to miss. But if Kuntz had missed or Strunz had missed. People would have asked, why didn't Andy Muller take it? But because of how it played out, it looked like a masterstroke. Andy Muller steps up. It is one of the best penalties you'll ever see. David Seaman, there could have been six of them in the goal, and he wasn't saving it. And that was the end of what was a fantastic two years for England, playing really exciting football under Venables. Now, credit to Glenn Hoddle. England played decent football under him, but they never got as close to winning a competition under him. The closest they've gotten since was obviously under Southgate. They got to a final lost to a fairly mediocre Italian team. They've gotten to a couple of semi-finals. They never felt as close. Even when they got to the final of the last Euros, it still didn't feel like they were going to win it. It didn't feel like they were going to win that competition. It felt like they could win this one. When they were ripping Scotland apart and then absolutely destroying the Dutch it felt like England were going to win these Euros. It's the best football I've ever seen England play. And unfortunately, they just ran into the one team who was better than them, and that was the Germans. If it had been a final, would things have been different? I think it might have been. Because if Neville misses the semi-final against either France or the Czechs, I don't think it's as telling. I think England then have that oppo- that option to bring Platt off the bench, Because Venables would have trusted Platt to come off the bench. And having David Platt's energy, running into the box, goal-scoring ability late in that type of game, if he'd been in the position Gaza was in, I think he gambles on it a bit more. I think he gets there and slides at home. But you look at the players that played under Terry Venables. And you look at some of the tactical things that he was doing, like that 3-2-3-2, like playing a 3-5-2, as Liverpool had with McManaman as a 10, like playing the back four with the Christmas tree type thing where he had a holding midfielder, two attacking midfielders, and then two wingers and one striker with Shearer up top. Venables was very, very creative in how he set his team up. And when we talk about England managers, obviously, Alf Ramsey is the first one that comes to mind. Then you think of Bobby Robson. Then you might think of a Capello or an Ericsson because they're more recent. And Terry Venables was only there for two years and he often gets overlooked. But when you think of the games they played, the style of football they played, and when you hear what the players that played under him have to say about him, you take great appreciation for who he was and what he was about. And players, including Gary Lineker, have said he's the best manager I ever played under. Now, Gary Lineker didn't play under a morass of great managers. He did play under a very good manager Howard Kendall. He played under Bobby Robson. So he did play under a couple of really, really good managers, and he says that Terry Venables is the best manager he had. Venables would go on to manage Australia. They just missed out on qualification for the 98 World Cup and he quit. He took over as manager of Crystal Palace, going back to where he made his managerial start and left in January of 99 after only six months. The club went into administration. There was a lot of... I don't even know how you describe it. There was a lot of circus around Crystal Palace at the time. Uh, they were owned by a gentleman called Mark Goldberg, who really did set them down the wrong road. Now, he put them in administration, he owed millions to a lot of people. They very nearly got taken to the wall. Simon Jordan took over. Uh, Simon Jordan then fixed them and then made an absolute mess of them afterwards, which was just always an interesting thing. Um, Yeah, got them from financially very much in the hole back on a level footing and then put them back in the hole almost in a worse state a worse state than they had been under Goldberg. Um, from there he went to Middlesbrough. Brian Robson was still in charge, but Venables was brought in to work as a joint manager. It was doomed for failure. absolutely doomed for failure from the start uh, because Venables had said that he was going to take the job but he wasn't going to give up the media gigs that he had. He's going to do both and in the end he was more focused on the media side of things. Same thing happened when he took over at Leeds. Uh, He was hired as manager of Leeds. Leeds were already very much going in the wrong direction. O'Leary had been sacked They were facing huge amounts of debt. Rio Ferdinand was about to be sold. Venables took over, but didn't really have the commitment to the club. Missed the first game he was due to be in charge of because he had to do some BBC holiday programme. He stayed for less than a year and he was sacked. And then it became a bit weird where he started getting linked to every single job that was going, despite the fact that we're now seven years on from him doing well with England, which obviously had come off the back of him doing well with Spurs. He got linked to the Ireland job. and There's, there's some clips that you can go and find of Eamon Dunphy and others talking about why he shouldn't get the Ireland job. Ultimately it was the right decision. He didn't get it. He'd been out of work a long time as a manager. he he had the year with Steve McLaren, which was weird. A former England manager coming back to be assistant manager to another England manager was just a bit weird, And especially when they failed to qualify for uh, Euro 2008. He was linked then to the Ireland job and he just didn't get it. He uh, was linked to Newcastle, didn't get that, was linked to Bunch of other clubs. QPR a couple of times. I think the Spurs job before Harry Redknapp got it. But it's a shame that his managerial career ended the way it did. You know, you look at what he did with Palace, with QPR, with Barca, with Spurs, and then obviously with England. I should point out the reason he left Spurs, had nothing to do with management. It was because he was also, as well as being the manager, he was also the chief executive of the club, appointed by Alan, Sh- uh, Alan Sugar. And he decided to step aside from the manager's job and appoint Peter Shreves. And he made a series of bad decisions because he had ambitions bigger than being a football manager. He wanted to be more than that. He wanted to run a club from the top because he'd seen others do it, and he thought I can do better. And him and Sugar just didn't get on. There was they end up in a high court case over it. Um, from yeah, from there he does well with England. Does really well with England. But after that, it's you know he did okay with Australia, but it's a failure at Palace, a failure at Borough, a failure at Leeds. And that's kind of what a lot of people have in their mind when they think of him as that end of the career. Certainly, fans of those three clubs, younger fans of Palace, fans of Borough, and fans of Leeds, will remember him as a failure who wasn't really committed to their to their club. Simple as that. He wasn't really committed to their club. But he was a tremendous manager back in the day. And yes, he didn't win a whole bunch of titles and whatever else. He won a second division title with, Q, with, with with Palace, having gotten them promoted from the third division. He took them from the third division to the top division. That's an incredible achievement. He won the second division with QPR. He got to the FA Cup final with QPR. He won La Liga. He won the Cup of de Liga. European Cup runner-up. Won an FA Cup with Spurs. He didn't have the success that you think of with top managers, but he did have success in certain ways. And he did change things about football. And He did play a great style of of football. And he brought that to Spain, to the England job. And he never wavered on what he believed in and what he wanted to do. And he never changed who he was for anybody. There's a lot of controversy around his business activities, uh, including a spell as part owner of um, of Portsmouth. But overall, I think Terry Venables made a very positive impact on English football. Is universally liked within the game. Was universally liked within the game, and I think he's he's a loss, you know, because the game can't have enough characters, and he was he was a great character, and as the column he used to used to have a few years back in one of the nationals was was always a good read. I think Jack Pitbrook used to go straight at for him, but it was Venables' words, and you could tell he was a guy that understood the game at a very deep level he was a guy that was forward thinking and again when we see the likes of pep guardiola getting lauded for being innovative and changing the game and stuff it's important to look back at the history of the game and see who did it first because there'll always be somebody terry Venables was that somebody on a few occasions Uh, We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll run through the nine games that took place the weekend. We'll do the news and gossip and we'll be done. So I'll see you after this. Right. Welcome back. So went much, much longer on Terry Venables than I had any intention of doing, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, Manchester City won Liverpool won in the early kickoff on Saturday. City dominated the first half. Liverpool did have a couple of chances, but City were in control. But they struggled to break Liverpool down and the only opportunities they really got came from Liverpool's sloppiness, including their goal. It's a miscued Alison Becker clearance that drops to Nathan Aki. He dribbles past Trent Alexander-Arnold and Dominic Sabozlai as if they weren't even there. Feeds it into Erling Haaland. Joel Matip has absolutely no idea that the giant Norwegian is behind him. Uh, Haaland takes one touch and kind of scuffs his shot and that's kind of how he beat Becker. I think Alison was expecting a firmer shot. Got a hand to it. Wasn't enough to keep it out. Uh, Liverpool equalised through Trent Alexander-Arnold after a really well-worked goal. Following a Liverpool counter that should have led to a goal and didn't because Luis Diaz mis-hit his pass. City then went down to the other end of the field and should have scored, but a combination of Virgil van Dijk and Alisson Becker kept them out. Then Liverpool cleared the ball. It landed to Ryan Gravenberg. 20 yards inside his own half, he breezed by Rodri, fed Diaz, Diaz played a cross-field ball to Salah, Cody Gakbo made a really good, unselfish run, drew a defender with him, created a pocket of space, Trent stepped into that pocket of space as Salah fed him the ball, one touch and a great finish. And to be fair, a draw was probably a fair result in the end. Neither side really did enough to win the game. Neither side deserved to lose the game. So fair is fair. Sheffield United won Bournemouth three. Bournemouth looked really good in this game. Really, really good in this game. By far the best they've played this season. Uh, two from Marcus Tavernier and one from Justin Cliver after a dreadful mistake by Wes Fotheringham gave Bournemouth their advantage. It could have been five or six ear missed another really good chance and they just flooded through the Sheffield United defence at will. Uh, Ollie McBurney did pull one back for Sheffield United in stoppage time, but it, it was for nothing in the end. Uh, Nottingham Forest 2, Brighton 3. Alanga put Forest 1 up on 3 minutes. Evan Ferguson equalised a lovely past finish into the bottom corner. Joe Pedro put Brighton two one up just before half time. Then put them three one up from the penalty spot on fifty eight. Morgan Gibbs White, who'd set up a Langa's goal with a lovely running cross, made it three two with a penalty on seventy six. Lewis Dunk had been sent off three minutes earlier. Um, what to say about the Lewis Dunk sending off? Um, I would imagine he's going to be. Oh, Lewis Dunk has been banned for two games after his red card. Uh he was booked. He was booked for questioning the decision to give the penalty. So it wasn't given. Taylor went across, looked at the pitch side monitor. Dunk said something to him as he walked by. So he booked him. Then Dunk went to walk away and he said something else and the referee sent him off. Now, the rumour is that he called him a baldy twat. I mean, I don't disagree. I don't condone it, but I don't disagree with it. But he got sent off, and to be fair, he should be sent off for that type of carry-on towards referee. Uh, so yeah, he will be suspended now for the games against Chelsea and Brentford, Uh, he is having a rotten season for Brighton. He has been really, really poor. He is the first player to be sent off for abusing a referee since Alan Smith for Newcastle, when the Magpies were beaten 6-0 by Manchester United in January 2008, almost 16 years ago. Yeah. But I don't disagree with what he said. It took a big, there was a big kerfuffle then of players whinging and crying and don't not leaving the field, and then penalty was taken. Gibbs White scored, and uh, Forest probably should have gotten a draw because they missed a couple of chances after that, including Gibbs White just getting a header all wrong. Uh, moving on, Burnley won West Ham two. Burnley just they just keep throwing these games away. Jay Rodriguez scored from the penalty spot on forty nine minutes. A Dara O'Shea own goal on 86 and then Thomas Suchek with the winner on 91. Turn what should have been a good afternoon for Burnley into yet another bad afternoon. Speaking of bad afternoons, Luton Town 2, Crystal Palace 1. Ted and Menji scored a really good goal to put Luton 1 up. Michael Elise scored an absolute worldie two minutes later to equalise. Jacob Brown got the winner in the 83rd minute. It is An absolutely phenomenal ball into the box. And if I can remember now who played that pass, I can't. Oh, uh, Chidozi Agbona. Chidozi Agbona's assist on this Jacob Brown goal. It is an unbelievable delivery. Go and have a look at that goal. Look at that delivery takes the defence and goalkeeper completely out of the game with it. Fantastic. Really bad afternoon for for, for for Palace. They lose, obviously, but not only that, Eze had to go off. He could be out for a while. And Cech de Kure went off with what is being suggested as a torn Achilles, which is season-ending and potentially career-altering. So not only will they lose one of their... Best and most important players potentially for the rest of the season, if that's what it is. But also, the hit they will now take on his sale value will be enormous. If they were looking for 60, 70 million for him off a torn Achilles, that will change drastically. If he comes back any less than, that will change drastically. So, a very, very bad afternoon. For Crystal Palace. A very bad afternoon for Chelsea as well, who went north to take on Newcastle. Alexander Isak scored on 13 minutes after the Chelsea defense fell asleep. Raheem Sterling scored a free kick, really nicely struck on 23 minutes to equalize. Jamal Lichelles put the tune 2 1 up on 60. Jolington put them 3 1 up after Thiago Silva did something really silly. Then Rhys James decided to get in on the silliness and got himself sent off. A horrendous first touch and just dragged back Anthony Gordon when he'd already been booked. Off he went. And Gordon made it four on 83 minutes. Two and comfortably the better team even before the red card. Well deserving of their win. Really, really bad afternoon for Chelsea. Uh, Brentford won Arsenal nil. Very fortunate win here for the Gunners. They did control large portions of the game. But Brentford missed two ludicrous chances. The first one, if anyone can tell me what Aaron Ramsdale was doing, his confidence, I actually feel sorry, from his confidence is shot to bits. He had three or four really sloppy moments in this first half. A couple of really poor uh, clearances that put Brentford in. The first one, I don't know how they don't score. Somehow, with the entire goal to aim at, barred the part that Declan Rice has positioned himself in, um, and Bomo manages to miss. I, I don't know what he, what he was trying to do, but he managed to miss. Then there's a, tr- a throwout that he basically throws directly into the ground and nearly gets himself in trouble again. There was at least two other kicking moments that were dreadful. The crowd were giving him a rough time. But his confidence is a shot because of how the managers treated him. Very, very poor management from Arteta it, with regards to Ramsdale. Gave him a new contract and then binned him off at the start of the season. Uh, Brentford's other big miss, I mean, Neil Mopay, Jesus, whack. There's like a scrambly chance that Zinchenko does really well to clear off the line after Mope does well to win the header, the ball goes out towards the left, is played back in. Arsenal's defence is all over the place. Mope has nobody near him, can take a touch and shoot, and only has the goalkeeper to beat. And I I don't even know how to describe what he did, but he basically just kicked it straight out of play. Kai Havertz scored the winner on 89 minutes from a lovely Bikayo Sackett cross. Uh, yesterday then Tottenham won, Aston Villa two. Great win for Villa. Giovanni Vaselso put Tottenham one up. Pau Torres and then Oli Watkins got the goals for Villa. Spurs hit the post and the crossbar. Villa had a goal disallowed. Sun missed a big chance. This was a really fun game. It was one of the best games of the season so far. Uh two good teams, though. Spurs, it must be noted, missing five starters. Romero, Van De Ven. Sar, Basuma, and Madison but Villa can only play what's in front of them can only beat what's in front of them and they went there and got three points and last but not least Manchester United going to Goodison and winning 3-0 I thought the Elise goal was potentially goal of the season and then Garnacho did that uh, it's a great cross by Delo actually do you know what it's not a great cross because it's behind him it's too high and it's behind him and Garnacho. Turns, throws himself in the air, and executes a picture perfect overhead kick. Now, I do maintain a goalkeeper with full size arms might save it, but it's an incredible goal. How United stayed one up, I have no idea. Everton comprehensively outplayed them for the rest of that first half. However, Lewin misses a good chance, Decore misses a great chance, Onana made a couple of good saves Odana made one really good save in the second half Um, Marcus Rashford scored on 56 minutes from the penalty spot probably the first time I've seen Bruno Fernandes do something and thought that's a real captain's act Um, because Bruno is their penalty taker he handed the ball to Rashford who obviously is low on confidence, needed a goal and it's a great penalty Pickford has no chance and then Fernandes gets an assist on the Martial goal which wraps it up. 3-0, massively flattered United. Uh, possession was split. Everton had 15 more shots, only two more on target, which was, you know... But Everton were at least the match of United, but United get the win, and uh, that's all they'll really care about. So, Premier League table. Arsenal are top 30 points, one point clear of Manchester City. City are one point clear of Liverpool who are ahead of Aston Villa, only on goal difference. Then it's two points to Spurs, two points to United, one point to Newcastle, one point to Brighton, two points to West Ham, and then four points to Chelsea, who sit 10th, eight points off top four, sorry, 12 points off top four, 14 points off the top of the league, uh, yet only 12 points off the bottom. After them, it is Brentford, who are... Literally behind them by one goal. Uh then Wolves a point behind Brentford. Crystal Palace are one goal worse off than Wolves. Two points then to Nottingham Forest in 14th. A point to Fulham, who are four goals better off than Brentford. Sorry, Bournemouth. Bournemouth have a three-point gap on Luton. Luton have a four-point gap on Sheffield United, who have a one-point lead on Everton, who are ahead of Burnley on goal difference, substantially so. Um, I think it's getting to the time where Burnley really need to make a decision on Vincent Company. I think it really is that time. We do have one game in the Premier League tonight. That game will see Fulham in action, as is always the way of a Monday. They take on Wolves. Uh, a win for Fulham will see them, they're unlikely to win by five clear goals, so it will see them go from 15th to 14th. Uh, But a Wolves win would see them move into the top half ahead of Brentford and Chelsea. A draw is not enough to take them above, even though they'll have the same points because their goal difference is worse. But a Wolves win would see them 10th, which would be a hell of an achievement for Gary O'Neill. So I don't know if it'll be a good game, but I am looking forward to watching Matthias Cunha, who's one of the more exciting players in the league. Shame does no Neto, but it is what it is. Right, news. Um, there's a lot about Terry Venables. Uh, there's a good piece on the BBC website, Terry Venables, a special man and trailblazer. Now, unfortunately, it is written by Guillaume Balaga, who's a self-promoting bullshitter, but it's there anyway. Uh, Jude Bellingham breaks scoring record as Real return top uh, Bellingham scored his 14th goal of the season. He now has the most goals by any Real Madrid player in their first f- first 15 games. The previous record of 13 was held by uh, Cristiano de Stefano and Pruden. Uh, that's an incredible, that's an incredible start. Um The best England coach we had. There's another article there on the BBC about Venables. Uh, Spurs' feel-good factor will not last forever. No one expects it to. That's just a a, a of nonsense, really, to be honest. Um, Ramos sent off for the 29th time in his career in a bad-tempered game as uh, Sevilla lost 2-1 to Real Sociedad. Him and Jesus Navas were both sent off Uh, Ramos the second most red cards in football history and he has the most red cards in La Liga history with 21 that's nuts absolutely nuts Uh, Gareth Crooks has done his team of the week. I'm not going to give him any promotion because he's just a clown and he, he clearly didn't watch any football at the weekend. So we'll just do the gossip and get ourselves wrapped up for the day. We have a couple of days worth. So we will start off with Saturdays, I think. Yeah, here we go. Right. Saturday's gossip column. Uh, column. Newcastle will make a loan move for Calvin Phillips. And for Hugo Ekatiki in January, obviously they're up against the wall with FFP and trying to be very careful. Newcastle are also interested in Serhu Garassi and Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Juventus are hopeful Manchester United will allow Jaden Sancho to join them on loan in January. United should just let him go on loan. Brentford have no intention of selling Ivan Tony in January, despite strong interest from Arsenal and Chelsea. Manchester United have made Jared Brantwaite their prime defensive target in 2024. I doubt that's true, though I do think he's got a big future ahead of him. Clubs in the Saudi Pro League are considering a January move for Christian Eriksen. I don't think he'll go there. I I just have a feeling he won't go there. Not now, anyway. Uh, Bayern Munich are willing to pay Manchester United up to £26 for Rafael Varane. I, I bet that they're not. Varane would have to take a pay cut to join Byron, who would be unwilling to join, to match his 340,000 pounds a week wages so he can sit on the bench and watch Harry Maguire play. Uh Lens also interested in Varane. Uh Leeds will reject any interest from Liverpool, Leeds, oh, sorry, Liverpool, Everton or Crystal Palace uh, in January for Archie Gray. We'll see. Liverpool want Leroy Sané, I doubt it. Chelsea, uh, Real Madrid are set to offer former Chelsea manager Carlo Ancelotti a new contract I thought he'd agreed to take the Brazil job Maybe I'm wrong uh, Bayern Munich have moved ahead of Manchester United and Chelsea in the race for Schalke's 17-year-old German midfielder Hassan Drago. Uh, he's really talented, we'll wait and see Barcelona manager Xavi has rejected claims that Ilkay Gundogan will leave for Saudi Arabia in January. It would be a bit crazy if he did leave and he joined in the summer. Bournemouth will turn down any offer from West Ham for Dominic Solanke. That's wise. Best to keep him. AC Milan are considering a move for Manchester City's Brazil defender, Jan Cotto, who's on loan at Girona. Um. I could see that making some sense. He's a very good young player. They could do it and in, in upgrade it right back. Yeah, I could see that, to be fair. Uh, Laturo Martinez expects to be offered a new contract by Inter Milan after turning down interest from in Saudi Arabia. And finally, Manchester City forward Joel Nadala is attracting interest from Premier League and European clubs both for loans and permanent transfers. So that wraps up Saturday uh, on to Sunday. Wolves want Aaron Ramsdale on loan with an ob- obligation to buy in the summer. Is he better than Jose Sa? I don't think he's as reliable as Jose Sa, so I don't believe that. Um, Nottingham Forest manager Steve Cooper is under pressure with owner Evangelos Maricanakis growing increasingly frustrated at recent results. Uh, This is an exclusive in the Mail, the same Daily Mail who last year claimed he was on the brink of getting the sack, and two days later he was given a new contract, and they never acknowledged the fact that they had been spectacularly wrong. Uh, Tottenham are interested in Benfica defender Marato, but the Portuguese club are reluctant to sell him in January. He's very good. Um, he'd be a good backup for Van de Ven. Newcastle United's ability to spend in January will be impacted by whether Sandro Tonali's wages can be reduced as he serves his ban. I don't think they can. Uh, I also don't think that's going to be a big factor. Manchester United's French defender Raphael Varane is in, has not indicated he wants to leave the club despite being dropped. Of course, he doesn't want to, 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 want to leave. You're paying him three hundred uh, and forty grand a week so he can sit on the bench. He's delighted with life. Arsenal have no interest in Ruben Neves with Douglas Luiz, their primary midfield target in January. I don't think they've got anywhere close to the money to get him in January. Fulham are looking to sell Rodrigo Menez. with Atletico Monero keen to Brazil, bring the Brazilian back to his homeland, which could pave the way for Tino Werner to join on loan. Um... I'd like to see Rodrigo given some chances rather than just being shunted out, to be honest. Tottenham are ready to terminate the remainder of Hugo Lloris's contract with the 36-year-old French goalkeeper out of favour. I don't know why he didn't leave in the summer. Real Madrid, PSG, and Manchester City are all monitoring River Plate's 17-year-old Argentine forward, Claudio Echeverri. He's been likened to Alvarez and to Aguero and a couple of others. Um, I, assume, I assume he will leave quite soon because that's just what happens um, with young Argentine players. He is maybe the star of the Under-17 World Cup, uh, scored a hat-trick in the quarterfinals as Argentina beat Brazil. Um, semi-finals of that competition are tomorrow. Argentina take on Germany and France take on Mali. Germany beat Spain, Argentina beat Brazil, France beat Uzbekistan, who'd knocked out England, and Mali beat Morocco. So tournament is shaping up. So semi-finals tomorrow. The final is December 1st. Sorry, the, the third and fourth place playoff is December 1st, and the final is December 2nd. So if you do find time, worth checking that out. Um, Chelsea, Liverpool, and Manchester City are interested in signing Italy youth forward Francesco Camarda, who made his AC Milan debut on Saturday at the age of 15. I have a serious issue with these kids being put into first-team football at that age. I really do. Um, but I also don't believe a word of that story because it's literally just a hot topic. He's in the news right now. And 90minute.com are very, very spoofy, especially Graham Bailey. So you'll just put that in the bin. Uh Fenerbahce are interested in Anthony Martial. That's about the level he should be at, to be fair. Real Madrid have turned down the chance to sign Maro Ricciardi in January have they? So Guillermo Rai, who's the Real Madrid correspondent for the Atletico Madrid, said, Senior Real Madrid sources claim that when they have seen the agent, they've made it clear they're not interested in the player. I I, I don't think he was actually offered by Galatasaray. Maybe the agent is trying to shop him around to get him back to one of the major leagues. Uh, Birmingham and Tottenham have cooled their interest in Trevo Chalaba, who is free to leave Stamford Bridge in January, I would take him at Liverpool in a heartbeat. Genuinely. Manchester, United, Newcastle and Chelsea are all ready to make moves for Derby's 16-year-old Welsh youth forward, Cruz Allen. Okay. Arsenal are reluctant to spend a significant amount of money on a new striker in January, with the Gunners cooling their interest in Ivan Toney. Wolves have put a 60 million price tag on Pedro Neto amid Arsenal's growing interest in the 23 year old. I don't think he'd go to Arsenal because I don't think he'd want to be a rotation player. And I, even though I think he's a better player than Martinelli, I don't think because Martinelli is their primary goal scorer. I don't think he gets in the team ahead of him. He's not getting in over Saka. I, 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 I think there's a lot of fanciful stuff gets written about Arsenal. Um, because it's it's good for clicks, but I have I don't believe for a second that they're going to sign Douglas Luis, Pedro Neto, and a striker. That's another 200 million there, thereabouts. I have a feeling the owners are going to start pulling back there soon. Like, they've bought their team. Surely now it's about the manager coaching them up and developing them, rather than just continuing to pour money into it. They don't have a whole lot of needs left. And, you know, you'd ask the question of, he spent 170 million on Rice and Havertz. Why is our midfield worse? Because it is worse. Rice is a downgrade on Partey as a six. Havertz is a significant downgrade in Xhaka as an eight. Now Rice is an upgrade on Xhaka, but he's not actually playing better than Xhaka this year, as opposed to what Xhaka was last year. So it's like 170 million badly spent. Because Havertz is a bit of a mess. Um Chelsea are set to make Victor Osman their prime attacking target in January with the 24-year-old Nigerian open to a move. How do you know he's open to a move? Did you speak to him? I doubt it. He might have spoken to his agent, but again, I doubt it. Newcastle are closely monitoring the, process, the progress of Atletico Madrid's Brazilian winger Samuel Leno. He's a good player. I think he needs to stay where he is for now. Juventus are keen to sign a midfielder in January and have three Premier League midfielders on their shortlist. Thomas Partey, Calvin Phillips and Pierre-Emile Heusberg. My bet would be they get Pierre-Emile Heusberg. Juventus will aim to convince Jadon Sancho to join them on loan. Uh, Manchester City are interested in Douglas Luiz as well as Ruben Neves. I don't believe that because it's from Football Insider. Manchester City want to sign Valentin Barco before loaning him to Leicester. Maybe. Saudi side, Al Etifak are leading the chase to sign David De Gea. Is it really a chase? He's been out of contract for five months and nobody's come close to signing him. He's also made it clear he doesn't want to go to Saudi. West Ham are working on a deal to sign Porto's 26-year-old Nigerian left-back Zaidu Sanusi in January. Is he an upgrade? I don't think he is uh tottenham are monitoring the progress of gavin basunu tottenham just bought a really good goalkeeper they're not going to be in the market for the big money goalkeeper liverpool have to pay benfica an extra 8.5 million for darwin nunes after he made his 60th appearance for the club on saturday that's fine everton have agreed a deal to sign linfield 16 year old northern ireland youth forward brayden graham he's very highly regarded Leicester and Preston are keen on a loan move in January for Gerald Kwanzaa of Liverpool. Leicester would be a good move for him because they're going so well. Preston would be a good move as well because they play a nice brand of football. And Liverpool players have gone there before, and he'll obviously have Calvin Ramsey there, who he knows from his time together at Liverpool. Not that it was much time together, but, you know. Um, West Ham's Algerian winger... Saeed Ben Rama is attracting interest in Saudi Arabian clubs. It's just going to be really easy to look at any player who's Muslim and just say, oh, yeah, well, Saudi Arabia won't sign him. Uh, Chelsea defender Ian Matson could well leave the club on loan in January if he signs a new contract. And if he doesn't, they'll let him rot on the bench, but he'll leave next summer. Crystal Palace and Fulham have inquired about the availability of Ajax's 28-year-old English stri- striker Chuba Akpom. Um, both could could use a number 9 he's done okay at Ajax 13 games 5 goals Um, 5 and 9 in the league he's an interesting player like he came through at Arsenal didn't make the grade had a bunch of loans left went to Greece, was pretty good. Not great, but pretty good. Joined Borough, didn't settle in kind of straight away, had a poor first season, had another loan spell back with PAOK in Greece. And then he came back and he blew the doors off the championship last year, scored 28 and 40, which is completely out of line with the rest of his career, where prior to that, he had scored a total of... 26 league goals in his entire career. Nuts. Done okay with Ajax, though, to be fair. Um, What they pay for him? 13 million? They'll probably want 20 for him anyway. Right, that'll do us for today, folks. Thanks as always. I will see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye bye. Podcast Network.